So this week we come to the final chapter of Zechariah and the end of our study in the book. It's been truly a blessing to myself and I hope to all of you all as well. Um, I mentioned when we started the book that Martin Luther loved Zechariah, so much so that he wrote not one but two commentaries on it. And when he reaches chapter 14 in his second commentary, he writes this, here in this chapter, I give up. (laughs) For I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. I guess that might be why he didn't write anything in his first commentary on chapter 14. I tell you the story because misery loves company. I've struggled mightily this week. The chapter is filled with some very clear images and some extremely vague ones. Graphic scenes, strange and exotic allusions, and a very, very peculiar ending for both it and the entire book, because it's the end of the book. Um... Thankfully, I'm not just doing chapter 14, but I am concluding the book, which helped me to look at the entirety of Zechariah's message, which then brought me much better understanding of this particular chapter. It's the whole forest for the trees thing going on. So what's Zechariah been all about from beginning to end? God redeeming a people for himself in and through Jesus Christ, the King. That's what it's been about. Zechariah had a Jesus-entranced vision. He was captivated by this King that he kept talking about, the Christ. And that is what I hope you all take away from this morning that you will be captivated by the person and work of Jesus Christ. That you will have a Jesus-entranced vision of all things and would therefore tell everyone you know and meet about this king that is so utterly captivating. That's it. That's your application. I did it at the beginning. I want you to be captivated have a Jesus-entranced vision like Zechariah did. Now, I said Zechariah was captivated by Jesus, that his whole book has been about him. Have you seen it? The person and work of Jesus in every chapter. Richard Phillips had a great summary, and I'll just quote him instead of having to write it myself. He said this, in chapter 1, He appeared among the myrtle trees, mounted on a red horse, proclaiming the Lord's care for his beleaguered people. In chapter 2, he came with a measuring line as architect of God's restoration work. In chapter 3, chapter 3 presents one of the great Old Testament pictures of Christ, removing the soiled clothes from the dirty high priest. Behold, he said then, as he says now, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Chapter 4 presents the two olive trees, speaking of a union of the priestly and kingly line, which in chapter 6 is portrayed with the high priest enthroned 
Jesus Christ himself fulfilling both of those roles. Chapter 7 proclaims his day of feasting that puts an end to the fasts. Chapter 8 reveals him as the one through whom the covenant is fulfilled. They shall be my people and I will be their God. In chapter 9, he comes as the gentle king, righteous and having salvation as he, humbled and mounted on a donkey. In chapter 10, he is the cornerstone and the peg from which hang the hopes of Judah. Chapter 11 sets forth the good shepherd rejected by the flock. In chapter 12, he is the pierced one to whom his people look and mourn for their sin. Chapter 13 tells of the fountain that springs forth from him to cleanse those who mourn for for their sin and impurity. And chapter 14 is no different. It too is about the person and work of this king, Jesus. And specifically about his second coming, the return of the king. Now I know what you're thinking. You're giggling, so you know what you're thinking too. You're thinking about Lord of the Rings right now, aren't you? There's an entire movie called Lord or called Return of the King. And you'd be right. And Tolkien intentionally fashioned much of the book around this very theme. It was a metaphor he was painting of the return of the true king, Jesus Christ. Last time I spoke of the, and used images of the coronation of Aragorn as he became king and with the mighty celebration that ensued. But I want you to hear the words of Tolkien here from the book. As Aragorn rises with his head newly crowned, we're told, all that beheld him gazed in silence, for it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall he stood above all that were near, ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. Then went up the cry, Behold, the king. That's beautiful, isn't it? But a million billion times greater will be the reality of which Zechariah speaks. He says, the Lord will be king over the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. That was what the metaphor was about. And that is what Zechariah is proclaiming today. That is what this message is about. That day. Now, a quick word about that day here. It's not like the typical use of day, which refers to a literal 24-hour period of time, like in Genesis 1. This is a unique day, unbounded by light and darkness, sunrise and sunset. Zechariah says in verses 6 and 7, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there shall be light, or as the NLT puts it, on that day, the sources of light will no longer shine. There will be continuous day. There will be no normal day and night, for at evening time, it will be light. So this day, of which Zechariah speaks, is an indefinite period of time. The dawn of an unending age 
of the king's perfectly righteous reign. That is what this final passage of Zechariah is talking about. That time, the beginning of that reign. Now, as we open chapter 14, we would do well to glance back at the last few verses of 13. They are the key to our understanding the images and events of 14. Why? Well, look at how 13 ends, beginning in verse 9. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Does that ring a bell? Does that, does that verse ring a bell? That phrase? Chapter 14 opens in the context of the covenant. Its words and truths and events are a description of the outworking of the Lord's covenant. And this is essential for the heirs of the covenant to understand because of what they're about to be told they must endure. <clears throat> Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the soil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall be cut off from the city. Mm. Do you see why this needs the context of the covenant? Because that truth alone will help them to endure through these horrific times. The truth is that he is with them and will deliver them and keep his covenant promises when they look around them and they see this going on. Last week, Bill powerfully addressed the many trials and adversity that God's people must endure. So I'm not going to rehash them here. Suffice it to say that the church throughout all ages has and will continue to undergo various degrees of suffering until, until, until then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall be northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Until that day, when the Lord will fight for his people, when the Lord my God will come with all of his holy ones, and he shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Do you remember during Jesus' ascension, as the disciples were standing there watching him ascend into heaven, standing on the Mount of Olives watching him, when two angels appear, and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And it was from the Mount of Olives that Jesus uttered the words, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This, this is the return of the King, Jesus' second coming in glory to claim his kingdom, defeat his enemies, save his people, and establish his eternal rule. This, when Jesus steps foot back on earth, is the beginning of the consummation of all things, of the kingdom of God, the dawning of that glorious, unending age of his perfectly righteous reign. What a glorious moment that will be! Hallelujah! What then follows in this passage are vivid images, metaphorical depictions of the spiritual and temporal realities that come as a result of the return of the king. They are magnificent and horrifying, beautiful and terrible, magnificently gracious or terrifyingly wrathful, depending on one's relation to the king at his return. First, we see the grace and the wonder of the king for those who are his covenant people. We already touched on verses 6 and 7, but there's more to those verses. We read on that day there will be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but at evening time there shall be light. But John, in his revelation, sheds more light on this magnificent scene and what's going on. He says, The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Get this. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. Why? Why? Why won't they need the sun? The Lord God will be their light. No more shadows, no more darkness, no more night. The Lord will be their light. Verse 8, he continues, Zechariah, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem? What's that all about? Well, John, John helps us. He gives more vibrant detail. He says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Will be in their midst. And his servants will worship him. Verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. John's vision again provides a more panoramic view. There were loud voices in heaven. Loud voices, louder than me, and I'm pretty loud. Saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. It's what we sing this morning. I think of the hallelujah chorus. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus proclaimed, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hallelujah. Hmm. Verses 10 and 11. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, and it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. Phillips says, this is the prophetic ideal achieved in the glorification of God's mountain and city. Isaiah foretold, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. The Apostle John once again writes, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. We read this this morning, didn't we? And showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out from heaven, from the heaven of God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, like clear as crystal. Are you guys catching the vision of what the return of the king will do for his covenant people? For who? Who receives all of this? Who not only lives in the city of God, on the mountain of God, but is themselves the city of God? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there, shall, shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Did verse 3 sound familiar? Is it a ring at a bell? Like maybe something we just read in the book of Zechariah? It's all there, isn't it? It's all right there. Like I said at the beginning, this is about God's covenant faithfulness in the return of the King, Jesus Christ. The covenant language of Zechariah and Revelation is realized at His coming. This is awe-inducing, folks! More awe-inducing than that. Wonder-filled glory, glory, glorious! That is the destiny of the covenant people of the Lord. This is what King Jesus did. This is what He purchased and secured for His people. Hallelujah! 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 The chapter now turns to address the destiny of another group of people at the return of the king. Verse 12, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. He pivots suddenly to the judgment of the enemies of God and of his people. Jesus describes this scene in his Olivet Discourse. He says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And all, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power. And great glory. Revelation 1.7 says that all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. They will mourn and wail because the king has arrived and his judgment is at hand. And this judgment is graphically depicted here. Verse 12 their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their eye sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other even Judah will fight against Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague 
shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Now, the audience would have been very familiar with the ideas and concepts addressed here. The idea of plagues and the place that they played in Israel's history, they, they would have understood. The graphic portrayal of people's flesh and eyes and tongues rotting due to these plagues are especially vivid and repulsive, aren't they? Evoking feelings of sheer horror upon this judgment. He then describes the utter terror, the panic and despair of the people. The loss of all their worldly goods and all they'd set their hearts upon and of all the means and implements of war at the judgment of this king. Further augmenting this dreadful, dreadful scene. And they cannot escape it when it comes. The point of these vivid images is simply to convey the concept of the utter destruction that will come upon the enemies of God and his people. It's akin to the graphic images Jesus employs in describing hell. He used the most terrifying earthly ideas that people could understand to convey the interminable horror of hell. And Zechariah does the same to convey the utter destruction of the enemies of this king. This is the power and great glory of the king that all the tribes of earth will mourn and wail at. It is awesome. It is terrible. And here's the mind-blowing part. The covenant people of God will rejoice at this power and judgment because he is vindicating his glory and his people. Hmm. Verse 16, actually verses 16 through 19 now address two other groups of people not yet covered. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there shall be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So the first group in verse 16 is described as a remnant of the foreign nations who regularly go up to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Okay? The second group, 17 through 19, are people from among all the families of the earth that don't worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Booths. 
it says that those, those who don't, are like Egypt and will incur the same judgment, the same plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that we just read about in 12 through 15. So what the heck is going on here? This is, this, 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 this seems odd and unusual. I spent a lot of time, a lot of time looking at this going, Lord, what is going on here? Well, there's some important information we need to have to really grasp what is going on here. First was the typical Israelites' penchant to judge people standing before God based upon their nationality. That is, believing that all non-Jews, those of any other nations other than their own, to be condemned and under judgment. And believing themselves to be heirs of the covenant merely by virtue of their being Hebrew. So upon hearing the previous images that we just finished talking about, they were likely lumping themselves among the heavenly Jerusalem, regardless of their spiritual state, whether or not they worshiped the king, the Lord of hosts, and kept the Feast of Booths. You're going, what is the Feast of Booths? What is going on? I'll tell you, just wait. On the other side of the coin, they were probably hearing in Zechariah's words that everyone from every other nation would incur the harsh judgment that was just announced, regardless of whether they worshipped the king, the Lord of hosts, and kept the Feast of Booths. But neither was true. Hence, verses 16 through 19, addressing these two issues. Now, before we finish the thought, we need to understand that phrase. What does going up to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths mean? What does it mean? I'm glad you asked. And if you didn't, I'm going to tell you anyways. Let's look at this in two parts to see how they are one and the same act. Worship the king, the Lord of hosts. Let me ask you, who is it in the context of this book, who is this talking about? Who is the king? Who? Wow, Jesus. It was Jesus. I think it was Jesus. Jesus! It's clearly here in chapter 14 as we've already seen. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. And who was that? Remember the guys looking up. Hey, standing on the Mount of Olives. And the, the angel's saying, hey, he's coming back to stand on the Mount of Olives. The Lord my God will come with all of his holy ones with him. And the Lord will be what? King over the earth. Remember chapter 9? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And at the end of the ages, as this passage has been addressing and uh, as this passage has been addressing and revelation expanding upon, who is the king? 
Revelation 17, the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, king of king and lord of lords. Those in this passage must worship this king who is coming to reign. And who is that? Jesus. Good, good. You found your voice. Well done. But what about the whole Feast of Booths thing? What was the Feast of Booths anyway? Well, the, the feast was also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Ingathering, or in Hebrew, Sukkot. It was the seventh and last feast that God had commanded the Israelites to observe. The eminent scholar, Joshua Lee, says... The overall purpose of the Feast of Booths was to commemorate and celebrate God's gracious salvation of the Jews from Egypt through their rituals of rest, reflection, and congregational reenactment. God had saved the Jews from Egypt and led them through the desert where they lived in tents. There in the wilderness, they thirsted for God, thirsted, and God miraculously gave them water from the rocks to quench their thirst. So that's the scene, right? They're remembering, they're commemorating as they were wandering through the wilderness after God had preserved them and they're desperate for water. Remember, we're thirsty, Lord! Moses. And so, once a year, the Hebrews would keep the feast by constructing makeshift booths or shelters, hence the name. And then they would sleep in those little booths and shelters during the eight days of the feast. Okay, got that? So, how many of you celebrate the Feast of Booths? Oh, oh, we got some hands. If I could raise my hand, I would. Now, I don't mean by that question going out a certain week of the year and building a makeshift hut and living in it for a week, even though during the summer up on the Platte River, it sounds like a really good idea, or for a couple of months. Nor is the literal celebration of it what Zechariah is speaking of here. Rather, like all of the biblical feasts, this priest represented something, this feast represented something, pointed to something. You guys ready for this? On the last day of the feast, on the eighth day, there was a ritual that took place where the priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam and lead a solemn processional to the temple where the high priest would then take and pour that water out at the foot or the base of the altar. This final ritual had both physical and spiritual significance for them. The rainy season was about to begin, and so the pouring out of the water was a thank offering to God in expectation of the rain that he was going to send and 
of the spiritual living water or rain that he was going to send. In John, we read, on the last day of the feast, that feast that we're talking about, the great day, you can, you, can, you can almost see the imagery here on that last day. And this high priest has taken the water and he begins to pour it out of the foot of the altar. And all of a sudden, a voice cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The Feast of Booths pointed to the living water that Jesus would provide. If they come to Jesus to drink, believe in him, worship him, then they are truly celebrating the Feast of Booths and will have this living water. This, this is what it means to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths by believing in Jesus Christ. Amen! I remember once being asked by a messianic friend, do you keep the feasts? I answered, yes, I keep every one of them. And I keep every one of them every single day because I believe in Jesus. I keep the Feast of Booths every moment because I have trusted in the living water in Jesus Christ to deliver me as God has delivered his people. And so does everyone else who believes in Jesus. You all, if you believe in Christ, celebrate the Feast of Booths. And to those who don't, Zechariah says, there shall be no rain. (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That gave the whole rain thing a whole lot more meaning, didn't it? If they don't come to Jesus to drink, believe in him, worship him, then they have no water for life that the Feast of Booths was pointing to. And so this section is clarifying who, in fact, are the participants in the eternal covenant of the Lord and those who are not. It has nothing to do with one's ethnicity or nationality. As Paul clearly affirms in Romans 9, 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul was pointing out the same misapprehension as Zechariah was here. You thought those promises were for a certain group, but you were wrong. You thought every Hebrew was included in the covenant promises, and you thought every non-Hebrew was excluded from those covenant promises but you were wrong. 
those who are included, who are partakers of the eternal covenant, recipients of the covenant promises, are those who worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Booths. That is, who believes in and worships the King, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. I have to go back here. Back to that scene in Revelation 21 that we already read about. Let's hear it again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will tabernacle. He will dwell with them. What has Christ done? He's dwelt with us. And they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Wow. This chapter in this book, Zechariah and the Bible, are all about Jesus, the King of kings. Now this chapter in the whole book ends with these final words. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The end. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Huh? Huh? That, that, that seems like a really odd way to conclude the chapter, let alone the whole book. Anybody, can I get a raise, a raise? Somebody raise a hand for me, please. Give me an amen. Now, in the Old Testament, the inscription, Holy to the Lord, was worn on the turban of the high priest. marking how holy and set apart he and his dress was. But on that day, this will be written on the bells that adorn horse tackle, what horses wear. And the bowls before the altar, the bowls that poured out the sacrificial blood, were especially sacred, holy to the Lord. But on that day that he steps foot on the Mount of Olives, the common cooking dishes will be just as sacred. Hmm. This is saying that when the king returns, he will make all that is, all that remains as it should be, holy. He will make it holy. Nothing will be common or profane or secular. All of it will be uncommon, 
holy and sacred, holy to the Lord. Now get this, so that, there's a so that just tucked right in there. So that all may come into the holy place. The holy place is what this sacrifice and the boiling of meat represents. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord. The word traitor here is actually Canaanite. There won't be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. Why? Because all those foreigners and non-Levites that worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Booths will also be holy to the Lord. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. In other words, there are no traitors. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There will be no foreigners. There will be no Canaanites. For we have all trusted. Those who have trusted in Christ are one. Everyone who trusts in Jesus will have been made holy to the Lord by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 10. For by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. They sanctified the vessels. Christ sanctified us and made us holy to the Lord. Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Oh! That's what Zechariah was talking about, wasn't it? Entering the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, there's that language again. Sounds like he's quoting Zechariah, like thinking of Zechariah as he's talking about this. Because of that, let us draw near. Who? Everybody, everybody, well done. Let everybody draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. But you, you are a chosen race. You are a holy priesthood. Everybody who believes in Christ is a holy priesthood, a royal or a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you're a Canaanite. But now you are God's people. You're not a traitor anymore. You're his. You are holy to the Lord. Once you had not received mercy, but get this, write this one down, but now you have received mercy. Amen. When the king returns, he himself will will usher all of us 
into the Holy of Holies to behold the King, the Lord of hosts, so we can worship him face to face. God said to Abraham, I am your great reward. Christ in God, the King, will be our reward. And that is all we will ever want or need. He is the pinnacle of glory. He is the one who makes canyons grand and waters to fall and oceans to roar and rivers to run, who makes the stars to shine, who gives to everything its life and breath, its beauty and its glory and its goodness, who is the origin of joy and pleasure, the fountain of delight and gladness, the source of peace and security. He is and always will be your king. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with us. And we will be his people. And God himself will be with us and be our God. Let's pray. You are our King. You are our God. Thank you, Lord, for the guarantee of being with you forever and ever. May that captivate our hearts, the vision of the holy, holy, holy God in the person of Jesus Christ coming and dying for our sins to fulfill that covenant, all of the covenant promises. First and foremost, that we are your people and you are our God. You are great, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.